You know, we've been uh, going through Hebrews chapter 11, and for several weeks we've been looking at Abraham, the life of Abraham. Abraham was called the father of the faith, uh, and as you look at his life, you realize even though he's the father of the faith, he's the one we think of often when we talk about faith, his faith was very imperfect. There were times that Abraham tried to fulfill God's promises himself. Uh, it didn't seem to him that God was getting the job done. <laughs> he figured God probably needed a little help, like the time Abraham had a child through Sarah's servant because Sarah hadn't been able to give him a child and God had told him that he would have all these descendants. And Ishmael was actually Abraham's firstborn. And yet Isaac was the child God recognized because he was the child of promise, the one that God provided, not Ishmael. He was the one chosen to carry on Abraham's legacy. But that was a lapse of faith on Abraham's part. So we're not talking about perfect faith when we're talking about faith. We're talking about continuing to come back and trust God. In fact, as we've seen uh, other lapses in Abraham's faith, if you look at his life, like the time he was going into Egypt, we're told that when he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, he said, look, you're, you're a very beautiful woman. You're kind of knock dead gorgeous, okay? And, and he says, the Egyptians are going to see you and they're going to think, you're my wife, and so they're going to kill me so they can have you. So please just tell them you're, you're my sister, then they can take you, and my life will be spared. Now, you see some faith lacking here in this. <laughs> and we know that when he arrives in Egypt, the Egyptians looked at her and said, wow, this, this woman's really beautiful. And, and, and Pharaoh's princes raved over her to Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh took her into his house as his wife, but God hit Pharaoh's house uh, really hard, and everybody got very sick there. And Pharaoh calls Abraham and says, What have you done to me? You didn't tell me she was your wife. Why did you say she was your sister? So that I'd take her as my wife. Here's your wife back. Take her and get out of here. <laughs> and so Pharaoh ordered his men to get Abraham out of the country and they sent him and his wife and everything he owned away. So when Abraham tried to help out God, it didn't work that well, did it? Uh, and in spite of his rebuke of Abram, later in his life he would do the same thing again. And uh, apparently she was somewhat at age well. And uh, with Abimelech, and, and she, he goes through the whole thing again. He, he didn't learn his lesson that well. But what I'm saying is there's times he really lapsed in his faith. More, instead of having faith to trust God, to take care of him more than once, he devised plans to fix things, and his plans were never very successful. Human efforts to fulfill the promises of God seem to create more problems than they solve. But the thing is that through all these tests throughout his life, Abraham kept growing in his faith. He had lots of ups and downs throughout his life, but at the, toward the end of his life, when the big test came of relinquishing his son, Isaac, back to God, he showed that he now completely believed God, and even though he didn't understand what God was doing, and even though the test seemed to contradict the promises that God had given him, he was still obedient, and through these tests of faith, he grew in his faith. 
through the successes and failures of faith, he grew in his faith. Well, when Abraham died, he had not yet seen the promises of God fulfilled. Nevertheless, he was still believing God would fulfill his word at the time of his death. And this morning we come to Abraham's descendants, and we're going to be looking at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And and really, as we look at them, we're going to see that they too were imperfect men. But what impresses the writer of Hebrews is that when they came to their final hour, even though none of them saw the promises of God fulfilled in their lifetime either, they also looked beyond death and show that they too were sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they did not see. They all were convinced that not even death would frustrate God's purposes, that his word was going to be fulfilled. You know, facing death is probably the biggest test in a person's life, the biggest test of their faith. And these three men mentioned here all had heard the promises of God from their fathers, but they never saw God completely deliver on those promises. You know, think about it. We're talking four generations here now from the giving of the original promise. These men still have not seen these promises answered. And yet they're still believing at the time of their deaths that God is going to deliver on his word. You know, and that's what we want to look at this morning. And so today I'm going to look at these next three men who at the end of their lives are still full of faith, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And these men, like Abraham, didn't always exhibit faith. At times we find their lives pretty messy and at times they're unfaithful. But at least when all is said and done and they're making their exit from their life, this life, they're still exhibiting great faith in the promises of God. Well, first then we're going to look at Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob, whom both passed on blessings to their children and grandchildren by faith. So this morning our text is Hebrews 11, and we'll start in verses 20 and 21. Isaac and Jacob. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future, and then his son By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, his grandsons, and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Isaac, as we said, was the child of promise, born to Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham died, God confirmed the covenant he made with Abraham, with him as well. He said to Isaac, stay in the land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. So it's still the promise of the land. Still hasn't become theirs, but it's still the promise of the land. And he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's beginning to happen, but it's still a long ways to go there. And I will give them these lands, all these lands. That hasn't happened yet. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that, of course, is pointing ahead toward the Messiah who's going to be a descendant way down the line. But that hasn't happened yet. Now, Isaac uh, seems to be the least noteworthy of all the people of faith mentioned here. He lived longer than the other ones, but there's less written about him. 
It's been noted that, that uh, where Jacob and Joseph each have 12 chapters dedicated to them in the biblical canon, Isaac's story is condensed into just two chapters in Genesis 26 and 27. And there's a few other references to him throughout the Bible. But it seems he lived a rather relatively quiet life. He's, he's a rather inconsequential man who's sandwiched between two very significant men, Abraham and Jacob. You know, Isaac's life, for the most part, is uneventful. You have a few times where some, you see him interacting with people around him. But there's not a lot written about him. And God did ritually bless him. He was successful. But much of the biblical material about him concerns his passing on the promises to his sons, Jacob and Esau. At least that's what we're focusing on here in 11, Hebrews 11, verse 20, where it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Now, now Genesis 25 tells us about the birth of these two boys, Esau and Jacob. They were both born uh, in response to Rebekah's prayer for a child. Again, it's interesting, this is the second generation that's having trouble having children. And it's fascinating because the promise is they're going to have a huge number of descendants, right? But they had to pray for a miracle too, and God provided, and he gave them these twin boys, uh, not identical twins, but twins, and they were told, and she was told that the younger son would receive the blessing. Father Isaac, we discover in the story, however, preferred Esau over Jacob. And we're told in Genesis 25, 28, that Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, (laughs) loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, now, do you see a problem here? <laughs> right away, you see an imperfect family, right? You see parents who are having favorites, and, and they're not in agreement about who the favorite is. Isaac's favorite was Esau, because he loved food, and Jacob's favorite was Jacob. And, and this favoritism is going to be the source of a lot of heartache in this family. Now, when Isaac's old and blind... He calls his favorite son Esau and asks him to prepare some venison for him and cook the way he likes it. And then he informs him that after he eats this meal, he's going to bless him. So this is going to be the family blessing. The father's blessing was often tied to the birthright, something Esau had already traded away to Jacob. And these things involve the conferring of a double portion of the family inheritance on the firstborn son and coupling with prophetic words about their future. But remember, at the birth of the twins, God had already told Rebekah that the sons in your womb represent two nations. And from the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. And your older son will serve your younger. So there's two nations in her womb. Uh, Esau is the, the father of the Edomites. And there's going to be this contention between them. They're going to be rivals. It's really kind of a little fascinating side note that this continues on throughout the generations. But at the time of the birth of Christ, you know who an Edomite is? King Herod is an Edomite. <laughs> so in this mother's womb, you have King Herod on the one side and you have have uh, Jesus on the other side, right? You see that tension uh, between these two nations. Well, when Sarah overhears that Isaac's about to confer the family blessing on Esau, 
She goes into action to secure a blessing for her favorite son, Jacob. And whether she's doing this because she's trying to fulfill the prophetic word that she was given at the time of their birth, or whether she's just making sure her favorite son gets the blessing, we don't know. I guess it's as much the latter as the earlier. There's no indication here that Isaac... um, did it for any reason except that that was probably the custom of the time to give the birthright and the blessing to the eldest son. But it's also been said that Esau was his favorite. And and so you have this event coming to a head right now and, and Sarah goes into action and she urges Jacob to dress up like his brother in his brother's clothes and just disguise himself and remember his father's blind now and get Isaac to de- deceive to thinking he's Esau and then he will give him the blessing instead of Jacob. And soon after this, when Isaac discovers that this has happened and he's been duped, he doesn't revoke the blessing. Rather, he accepts the fact that God's word to Rebekah at the birth would indeed come to pass and that the older son would serve the younger. But when Esau discovers that he's lost the blessing as he did the birthright earlier, he begs his father to back it up and undo it because his father's been deceived and his father wouldn't do that. So he's filled with rage against his brother Jacob and Jacob has to flee for the fear of his life. And because of this deception, Jacob had to live out his days separated from his family. Now, Adrian Rogers points out that this is a dysfunctional family. He says you have a sensual father, Isaac, who's thinking about food. You have a scheming mother, Rebecca, who's making sure things work out the way she wants them to. You have a shady son, Jacob, who deceives his brother twice. And you have a sorry brother, Esau, who's always on the short end of the stick. What a family. Just like our families, huh? No, Uh, Russell Moore says this, he says, finally, family is a source of life-giving blessing, but it can also be the source of excruciating terror. (laughs) And that definitely was the case in Abraham's family. You have essential father Isaac. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. Now, that to me seems like such a strange statement. (laughs) The reason given for giving... For him loving Esau as he has a taste for wild game. And, and uh, Adrian Rogers says this, he says, the thing that seems to motivate Isaac here is his desire for meat. <laughs> he says many dads in America are materialists like Isaac. They're wrapped up in their business and in sports and in recreation and in alcohol and in food and materialism. And he says essential fathers are living self-centered lives and their families are falling apart. <laughs> And that's the case. Many, many fathers sometimes are more focused on what they're trying to achieve and what they're trying to gain in life, and, and, and they, they neglect their families. But secondly, in this family, we have a scheming mother, Rebecca. And Rebecca takes things into her own hands to secure what she thinks they should happen. Roger says this, she's, she's trying rather than trusting. <laughs> she's trying to manipulate things. He says, the truth of the matter is, she knew already that Jacob was the one to be blessed. The question then is, why is she trying to make something happen that God said was going to happen anyway? 
And he says, do you know what happened to Rebecca? She lost. She lost her, her son, the one she was trying to bless, the one she loved. He says, after this episode, she never really saw her son again in the rest of her life. The son that she's trying to keep tied to her apron strings. She lost him. He went away. He never returned. She never saw her grandsons. Because she's a schemer trying to rig things rather than trusting God. And thirdly, there's shady Jacob. (laughs) Roger says of Jacob, Jacob was a conniver from the beginning. Early he had convinced his brother to give up his birthright. And here Jacob went along with his mother's plan to deceive his father and to giving him the blessing. When he went in and served his father the meal that was like Esau would have fixed, he said, I am Esau, your firstborn. He lies. He says, I've done as you've told me. Please sit up and eat some food so that you may give me the blessing. The birthright's already his, but now he's plotting to secure the blessing as well. He didn't need to deceive Isaac. No power on earth could have kept the blessing from him. He's like many believers today who are trying to bring the outcome they think God wants for them, and they go about it the wrong way. They manipulate to get what they think God wants them to have instead of waiting on God to deliver on his promises. And then you have Esau. It's interesting, in the next chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 16, the author of Hebrews says this to the people who are sexually immoral. He says, see to it that no one who is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, he calls Esau godless, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterwards, as you know, When he wanted to inherit his blessings, he was rejected. He didn't get the blessing because he had traded away the birthright. He says he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. He begged his father to give him the blessing, but he couldn't give it because God had ordained that Jacob would get the blessing instead. So Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. He had no real appreciation for it. He willingly bartered it for a moment of gratification to feed his appetite. You know, the parallel thought here in this uh, Hebrews 12 passage between sexual immorality and Esau trading away his birthright for a bowl of beans was that they were both living for immediate pleasure without valuing what God wants us to value. And Esau here was referred to as a worldly man. The author of Hebrews calls him, in the King James Version, they call him profane, In the NIV, they call him godless. Godless means that he had little regard for God or the things of God. He was a man who lived for earthly pleasures. He may have wanted the blessing, but it was really more the the earthly benefits of the blessing rather than the, the promise to be a part of God's plan through the ages that really, you know, stirred him. It was the property and things like that that he was losing. But as you look at this, you think, that's a dysfunctional family. Here's favoritism. Two brothers that hate one another. A father who is very materialistic and sensual. A mother who's scheming. Here's a son who's kind of deceptive and shady. And another son who's heartbroken. And they're all together in this one family. And you know what is amazing to me? This is the family God chooses to work through. 
You might think at times, you know, my family's a mess. What could God do with us? (laughs) But notice God never gave up on them. As long as they kept turning back to him, God kept working with them. He was still at work in their life. Despite the mess they made of everything, his plan is still being carried out through them, and eventually the Messiah would come through this very up-and-down family. (laughs) Rogers puts it this way. Here's Isaac backslidden, Rebecca scheming, Jacob a con artist, Esau a materialist. Do they stop God's doing what God's doing? No, not at all. Where man rules, God overrules. Someone described the Christian life this way. He says, imagine you're on a cruise. You have a lot of freedom to move around and make choices, do what you want to do. You can go up to your cabin. You can go down the deck. You can go swimming. You can go bowling. Uh, You can, at mealtime, have a choice of what you want to eat, where you want to eat. You can choose to be a good passenger and get along with people and be kind to other people or you can choose to be irritable and cause trouble with those around you you can do whatever you want but the whole time you're on this boat making decisions it's still headed toward a very specific destination (laughs) the plan's still being carried out and in the same way you can be God's child you can make decisions in your life that are going to make your life easier as you trust God or harder as you try to manipulate things to make them work to your benefit you can do what you want Isaac does what he wants Jacob did what he wanted Esau did what he wanted Rebecca did what she wanted and they all made life harder for them but the plan is still going to the predetermined destination God's in control. The one thing that Isaac and Jacob had in common is that regardless of all the things that went wrong, the number of lapses they had in their faith, despite all the dysfunction in their family, all, but the, the way they contributed to that, in spite of all that, at their death, they have come to the place that they're still clinging to God's promises and still trusting in God. And Isaac and Jacob both died believing in God. Now, the same thing is said of Joseph in verse 22. Joseph, we're told, when he was near the end, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. So here he's dying. He's getting toward the end of his life. And he tells his fellow Jews that God is going to bring them back out of Egypt. They're all in Egypt now. To the land that he has promised, this promised land that they still have not inherited. The land that's promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're still believing God's going to do this. And then he made them promise that when they go there, he didn't want to be left in Egypt. He wanted to go and be buried in Canaan. And Stephen Cole points out that Joseph demonstrated many instances of strong faith throughout his lifetime. Fact is, as you look at these three men, the one who keeps exhibiting uh, a really solid faith is Joseph. You, you see, very time, few times he has lapses compared to his to uh, Jacob and Isaac. He did have lapses, but you see more often in his life his tremendous faith. And if you look at his life, you see several times he exhibited amazing faith. He, he resisted the seductive attempts of Potiphar's wife. 
He, he remained true to God while imprisoned unjustly. His faith enabled him to interpret dreams on more than one occasion. He dealt in a godly manner with the brothers who had wronged him and betrayed him and sold him away to slavery in Egypt. He became really significant in Egypt and administered food in the relief program and took care of the nation of Egypt and the Canaanites and, and the, his family as well when they came to Egypt to get food during the Great Famine. But when the author of Hebrews talks about his faith, he doesn't talk about any of these occasions that faith was demonstrated. He picks out one where Joseph says, this is what I want done with my bones. <laughs> and why? The main reason is that he shows that when he is dying, he is still believing that God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Four generations have gone by now since the original promise. Hey, go back four generations in your family to think about the length of time we're talking about here. For, the, for this family, it was probably about 200 years back. The promises of God are still not fulfilled. They don't possess the promised land. The seed who's supposed to bless the whole world that's to come from them, they haven't even seen a hint that he's coming on the scene yet. Nevertheless, Joseph, like Jacob and Isaac before him, is still trusting God at the end of his life. And understand that Joseph and his family were doing quite well in Egypt. It wasn't until after his death that the, the Israelites became slaves in Egypt. They were, they were living in Goshen, a really... Uh, the best land in all of Egypt. And he was the prime minister of Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh himself. He was a rich and powerful man. But despite all of his success, he didn't want to be buried there where he was an earthly success. He wanted to be buried where he would be identified with the promise of God. He wanted his bones to be taken home out of Egypt back to Canaan. And Cole says this. He says, by doing this, Joseph is disassociating himself from all the success in Egypt and associating himself with God and his people and his promises. He didn't want a grand tomb in Egypt where future generations of Egyptians would pay homage to the man who had saved their country from ruin. Instead, he wanted to find the final, his final resting place in the land of God's promise. His burial instructions were a strong exhortation to his people not to be satisfied with the blessings of Egypt, not to be satisfied with worldly blessings, <laughs> They should only be satisfied with God and his future promises. Success in life can make us very worldly people. We can lose sight of the fact that there's something better waiting for us on the other side. Our hearts can become more attached to our worldly possessions than heavenly treasures. The story of Joseph's bones should remind us not to put our hopes in material success, but to realize how empty riches are when we're on our deathbed. but how truly rich we are when we rest in the promises of God. On one occasion, Jesus asked his disciples, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? <laughs> but you yourself are lost and, and destroyed. And another occasion, he said, be on guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told him a story about a rich man who had a fertile farm and produced fine crops. 
And finally realized he didn't have enough room for all of his crops, so he tore down his barns and built bigger ones and, and kept accumulating more and more riches. And then God says to him, you fool, tonight you die. Then who gets everything you work for? And Jesus says, yes, a person is a fool who stores up earthly wealth but does not have a rich relationship with God. The people described in our passage this morning are not perfect people, but when they got to the end of their lives, they showed that they were trusting God, not in earthly treasures. The bottom line for them was that God was going to do what God promised to do. More than being rich or successful or attaining a great position in life or having certain possessions, they wanted to be part of what God had promised. And, and we're told in Hebrews eleven thirteen, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Our, our real investment is in heaven. <laughs> That's what we're living for. You know what all these people were trusting in? They were trusting that the word of God would come true. They were trusting that what God said he would deliver on. And that's what our faith should be in God's word. Adrian Rogers, he, he was a past president of the Southern Baptist denomination, pastor, told his people once when he got to this passage, he says, I've been preaching to you about faith for a number of Sundays. And he says, if you haven't learned anything else, I hope you learned this, that faith is rooted in the word of God. <laughs> he says, don't just decide to believe something and then believe it and call that biblical faith. He said, God must speak before you can have faith. He says, did you hear that? God has to say something before you have something to have faith in. He quotes, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And he continues this, but to share a little story, he says, um, there's a lady who came to him when he was sharing this, it was the day before, he said, so yesterday I got this phone call from a lady, and she said, I have a certain illness, and I'm going to the doctor, and when I get there, he's not going to find one trace of this illness in me. And he said, how do you know that? And she says, I've got faith. And Adrian Rogers said to her, did God tell you that there would be no more trace of illness in you when you got there? He goes on and says, now if God told you there would be healing, then you have to believe that. That's faith. But you may just have positive thinking. <laughs> There's a difference. You can't just say, I'm going to believe something and make it so. <laughs> You don't just decide what you want and claim that by faith. You believe it because God has shared it with you. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, but those things are there because God has said they're there. And so faith is not just positive thinking. Wishing doesn't make it so. Deciding doesn't make it so. Saying you believe something doesn't make it so. It's so if God says it's so. <laughs> And he goes on and shares an example out of his own life. He says, a number of years ago, he says, I was down in Florida and I was holding special meetings at a church and God had really blessed the evening. It was one of those evenings when God's spirit really came down on the group. 
He says, it was Sunday night and I was coming back, driving through South Florida swamps on a very quiet road back in what you would refer to as the boondocks, <laughs> okay? He was away from civilization. <laughs> and he says, I was in a little Volkswagen at the time and it had an auxiliary gas tank. And he says, if you run out of gas in the first tank, you just flip the lever to the second tank. There wasn't a gas gauge and it would go on to the second tank for a little while. He says, but I had already forgotten that I was in the second tank already. <laughs> it was about 10.30 at night, and I was just going, driving along happily about what God had been doing, praising the Lord, and I ran out of gasoline on this lonely road. I mean, I was out there where hardly anybody was driving by, just a few cars every now and then. And then it started to rain. And he says, and so I said, well, Lord... What do you want me to do? What do you have for me in all this? And he says, um, incidentally, there's two ways God can speak to you. He can speak to you directly through his word, or he can speak to you through the Holy Spirit, or he can use a combination of both. And he says, on this occasion, I felt the Spirit of God was speaking to me, and he said, Adrian, I want you to pray that an automobile will come along, and it will pick you up, and I want you to pray that the first car that comes along picks you up. And he said, I, I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to pray like I feel you're speaking to my heart about praying. I'm going to pray that the first car that comes along picks me up. And furthermore, Lord, if the second car or third car comes along and picks me up, that's not going to be an answer to this prayer because I feel impressed that you've asked me to pray that the first car that comes along is going to pick me up. And he says, I felt good about that. And I waited and I waited. And finally, I saw a car coming along and I just, you know, rolled down my window and looked out the side there and smiled knowing that they were going to pick me up. And this first car rolled along, came up beside my car, slowed way down, looked at me. And then he says, as kids might say it, they put their pedal to the metal and flew by. And he says, I watched the two taillights disappear in the darkness. And I was frustrated with God because I believe God and he had spoken to my heart and I said something very sacrilegious after a really meaningful evening with God. I said, never mind, Lord, I'll take care of this myself. The next car came along. He says, I stuck my thumb out the window and zoom, and it went past. And the next car came along. I stuck my thumb out the window again and zoom, and it went past. And now it's starting to rain heavier and heavier. And finally, I says, well, I'm going to have to walk. So I got out of the car in the rain, and I started to walk. He says, I only had one suit with me. This was Saturday night. I was going to preach the next morning. I had to wear this suit again the next morning, and it was raining really heavily. And as I was walking, eventually I saw an automobile coming in the opposite direction, the direction in which I was walking. And it shined his headlights on me, and he came to a complete stop and said, You need a ride, don't you? And I said, Yes, I do. He says, I came to get you. And he said, You what? He says, I came to get you. And he says, I looked carefully, and you know which car it was, of course, right? It was the first car that went by, right? He turned around. He says, once I got in the car, I asked the man, what made you come back to get me? And you know what he said to me? He said, beats me. <laughs> he said, I passed you a few minutes ago. I was afraid to pick you up. But he says, when I got down to the crossroads, I just got to thinking, that guy's in trouble. I got to go back and get him. And so something really impressed me to come back and get you. And Roger says, I almost shouted, but then I realized what a fool I had been. My suit was all wet. 
and it didn't need to be. (laughs) And he concludes the story saying this. He says, now what I'm saying is this. Look, folks, appearances will fool you, won't they? Sometimes your eyes, your ears, everything will tell you God hasn't heard your prayers, that you can't live by faith. He says, it's awful hard to live in this world where we live by our senses. He says, but for Joseph, appearances didn't diminish his faith. He didn't say, if you go back to Canaan, he says, when you go back, you're going back. I know you're going back. It doesn't make any sense now. But when you go back, take my bones. And time and circumstances seemed to be against it, but the word of God stood firm. These three men that we looked at today all had hope for their descendants because they believed the word that God had given to their father Abraham and they believed he was going to do it even though they're now into the fourth generation. They don't doubt. Even though they didn't see these promises fulfilled in their lifetime, they're still full of faith and hope. (laughs) That's incredible faith. Do you know something? I know that when I die, I'm going to go be with the Lord. And that's not because I'm so good. I'm part of this dysfunctional world. (laughs) There's dysfunction in my life. But I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I've committed my life to him. And I've trusted in what his son will do for me, not what I'm going to do for him. And I know he's going to accept me, not based on my goodness, but on his promises. His word is true. You know, if we believe what God says in his word, if, if we've given our lives to Christ, at the time of our passing, we can rest in our, his promises. God's word is sure. You know, I, so often I'm, I'm with people just after a loved one has passed away. And this week I was with Diane long after Bill went to be with the Lord. And I just want to tell you, there's a huge difference between a person dying who has faith and one who doesn't. I've been in both rooms over and over again. And despite the great loss that Diane felt there was such a peace in that room. It was almost a sacred moment as we sat there together. What a precious thing faith in God is at a time like that. Faith is being sure, sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all trusted the unseen spiritual truths that were real to them only through faith. (laughs) They were just believing something God had communicated. They believed something beyond their earthly lives. Like Abraham, who by faith made his home in the promised land and lived like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. He was invested in the next world already. And all these men's faith focused on spiritual realities beyond this life. It was rooted not in the things of the world, but things of heaven. These three family members that we talked about today all had different experiences in life. Some did life better than others. Joseph actually, even though all the heartache in his life, did it better than 
Jacob and Isaac. But what they all had in common is when they get to the end of their life, they're trusting in God. They, were, they live lives like pilgrims in this world, and they show that their true citizenship was in heaven. And each of them was concerned about passing on their faith to the next generation. These men never doubted the promises would come true. They did not die in despair of unfulfilled dreams, but in the perfect peace of unfulfilled promises, confident because they were God's promises. They knew by faith that God would fulfill his promises because he had made a covenant with them and God was a covenant-keeping God. And they died saying, they're going to come God in his time will fulfill all these things he has said. They died defeating death, knowing that even though they died, God's promises would not die. And that's a magnificent kind of faith, the kind of faith that God honors. None of these men experienced the full fulfillment of God's promises when they died. But they were still trusting what they knew he would do. Let's pray. Father, this chapter, this whole chapter is a call to have faith. And we honor you with our faith. Lord, when our faith lapses, we, we at times discredit you. But even then, you receive us back as we put our faith in you and trust in you. And Lord, I pray that if there's people here this morning battling belief wanting to believe in you, but living lives that are more characterized by doubt in you than belief in you. I pray that before they leave here this morning, they would be reminded that your word is true, the things you say are true, that they would anchor their beliefs in those things and continue to live lives of trusting you. Father, we have... generations to look back on and see how you have fulfilled your promises over and over again. And we just affirm tonight, this morning, that we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.